Amen. Remain standing. Go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word if you're able. Turn with me to the Bic, the, 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 the Bic of Leviticus. Sound good? The Book of Leviticus. Let's go with that one. That sounds better. Thank you so much, praise team. Um, as always, particularly, I think Ms. Andrew came in uh, last minute this week, and that's partly due to the fact that uh, many of you know uh, Miss Tammy Pate has, uh, has been a um, long time, not only employee, but really caregiver and um, and uh, true help to her boss, Mr. Frisch, and he um, passed away on Friday. And so please pray for Tammy and Judd and family. Um, she uh, really did minister to him very, very well, and, and so um, she was unable to make it today. And so uh, thank you to Praise Team as well. Oh, I forgot to do birthdays too. I don't think we have... Is Miss Jeannie Hinton here? I don't know if she's here today, but it's her birthday on Tuesday. And Miss Carrie has a birthday on Tuesday. Happy early birthday, Miss Carrie and Miss Jeannie. Um, we celebrate you and are thankful for you. All right, now to the, the business, and that is uh, Exodus 40 is where we're going to start. We're actually going to cover, get this, I know we started Leviticus last week, got you all hyped. This morning we're going to cover chapter 1, verse 1, and a little bit of verse 2. Okay? Sound good? You don't seem excited. I'll give you a break. Okay, Here, here's the deal. I, let me have this one this morning. And the next four weeks, we're going to cover chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. Deal? Deal. All right. Well, all right. So we're going to just uh, really grab on the first part of, of verse 1 and 2. But I, I do want to read from Exodus, starting in um, Exodus 40. So we're going to read from Exodus 40, 34, into a new book, into Leviticus... And you'll see why in a second, uh, then to Leviticus 1 and 2a. So in Exodus 40, verse 34, we begin, God's word says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting, because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from, the, uh, from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now we turn to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures Let's go to Lord and thank Him for His Word. Gracious God, we do give You honor, glory, and praise. Lord, it all belongs to You. We thank You for bringing us here this morning, for giving us hearts that desire to sing songs of praise. Lord, we thank You, Lord, that we've already been addressed by Your Word this morning, both by songs singing to one another, the gospel message as we read Your Word even this morning, and, and as we prepare to see the Word made visible through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Father, we pray as needy people, asking once again that you might address us now by your word. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. All right, let me ask you. What would you do if God showed up here this morning? I, I'm... And I mean showed up where you could see him. I mean if, if his glory actually consumed this place. If he 
descended in glory on First Baptist Church of Grey Gables the same way he descended upon the tabernacle or tent of meeting. What if God this morning took up permanent residence with us so that we did not leave here until he would go out in front of us and wherever he stopped, we would stop? What impact would that have on you? How would you respond? Would you worship? Would you strive for holiness? Would you mortify sin? Would you proclaim his coming? What would change in your life, if anything? I want you to hold those questions in mind as we reintroduce ourselves to Leviticus chapter 1 this morning. In working through Leviticus 1, I want to present it in this way. I want to talk about the backdrop to set the stage, if you will. Then I want to present the characters we see in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. We see the Lord. We see Moses being called by the Lord. We see Israel. We also see a prop in the tent of meeting. But I want to then look at the big picture. So, And that's the way we're going to look at the text. We're going to look at the, the backdrop, the characters, and then the big picture. And then we're going to apply that in a way that I hope is very practical. You ready? You awake? Y'all didn't stay up too late watching the game last night, did you? I haven't actually stayed up until 9.30. All right. 9.30. TJ's ready. I don't know about the rest of you. All right. So let's look at the backdrop. Let's start with the backdrop. In setting the stage, it is necessary to recognize that in the Hebrew, the the very first word in this verse, in verse 1, is either translated and, or so, or then, or when, or now. Okay? The very first word in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, is translated either and, so, then, when, or now. It can be translated in any of these ways. That's why when we read in the New King James Version, for instance, you find it translated, Now the Lord spoke to Moses. Or if you have the King James Version, it's translated, and... In the ESV, they actually drop that, so you might lose it, but I think it's important because the point is, it's a continuation of what just came before in the book of Exodus. We are continuing on in this story, and we are to have that story firmly fixed in our minds in order to understand what's happening in the book of Leviticus. You see, Leviticus is a continuation of the Exodus account which is a continuation of the history in Genesis. Leviticus is a continuation of the Exodus account, which is a continuation of the history in Genesis. So we have to discuss Exodus. Of course, as we said, we know that Exodus is really just a continuation of everything that takes place in Genesis. And so in order to really stay in Exodus, we've got to scoot back to Genesis. And so we might as well just start all the way at the very beginning, right? So in the beginning was God. God was in the beginning and then he created all things for his glory. And at the pinnacle of his creation, he creates man. He creates man in a special covenant relationship with him. Uh, Man and woman are created in his image. They are to be covenant partners. They are to be servant kings and queens in creation. Sons and daughters of the God most high. And then God on the seventh day enters into his sabbatical Rest. 
Really, it's just a picture of him climbing onto his throne, taking his seat, and it all begins. Of course, we see that very shortly after all this takes place that Adam and Eve indeed break covenant with God. They are unfaithful in their covenant relationship. They don't trust God. They reject his rule and sin enters into the story. Yet God responds not with immediate judgment, but with much grace. And that grace comes in the form of a promise that eventually one would be born of a woman who would crush the enemy's head, who would bring redemption to God's people. And so the story goes. We see this progression of sin and corruption entering into the world in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. In fact, we get to the point where judgment has fallen on the entire earth and only Noah's family is saved. And even that doesn't really stop sin because before we know it, Men are building a tower to make a great name for themselves. And so we kind of begin to get the feeling that God's plan of redemption is never really going to come to fruition. And then right at that point, God calls and makes a covenant with Abraham. Through Abraham, he promises to make a great nation through whom all the world will be blessed. Now, when we get to Exodus, we find not really a nation at all. What we find is it's, it's more of a people group that's living under the rule of a dominant nation that has enslaved them. And so God calls the man Moses to go and face Pharaoh to liberate his people through miraculous acts, using Moses as his mouthpiece, as his prophet, and then out comes Israel. Out of Egypt, free from slavery, and brought to the foot of Mount Sinai, where he makes them a great nation. He constitutes a nation there and he covenants with Israel. And in that, we have here the birth of a new Adam. We have a new hope that this nation is indeed the nation that God has promised to Abraham through whom all the world will be blessed. That God is actually going to dwell in the midst of this nation. And so he has the people there build a tent where his special presence will be experienced by the people of Israel. And, And then we come to the end of Exodus and here's what we see. At the end of Exodus, we read about the completion of the tent and the condescension of God. We read about the completion of the tent. God gave them very elaborate and specific instructions on to build this tabernacle, this tent of meeting. And then we see God, the very presence of God, descend or condescend upon that tent of meeting. It's remarkable if you think about it. We see in Exodus, his glory descends. He comes to rest upon the tent. And and then the Lord calls Moses now... The Lord calls Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to him. This brings us to our text today. So that's the setting. That's the backdrop. Now we want to look at the characters and an important prop. This is the second part we want to look at. We've seen the setting. We've seen the context. The glory of the Lord has now descended. The very presence of God has descended upon the tent of meeting. And that, that, that glory, the Lord calls Moses and speaks to him from there. That's where all Leviticus takes place. That's the setting. And now we look at the characters, specifically three characters in this verse. And one, again, very important prop we recognize as well. We'll look at each in turn. The Lord is first. And notice how the Lord is presented there. If you have your text in front of you, 
you'll notice the Lord here is in capital L in small capital letters, O-R-D. If you, if you know, you, you know the title was used to replace the Lord's covenant name, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. This is the name by which God revealed himself to the people of Israel. And the reason that we read Lord here in this way is because the name Yahweh was considered too holy to be uttered by the lips of human beings. So the scribes, when they would copy down the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, they would replace Yahweh with this title, Lord. Actually, it would be Adonai in the Hebrew, eventually translated to Kyrios in the Greek, into Lord in English. And so this name has great significance. It is a, it's a personal name, as I mentioned. Um, Elohim was a, was a general word for God that was used. It's, it's the Hebrew equivalent to the general word for God. Yahweh is a personal name. It's, it's more like Jesus. It's a personal name. Just as in our culture, many would say they believe in God. And, and you can just go ahead and throw a lowercase g on that, right? Some type of great being who has done something to bring about creation. And, and many would claim to believe in that type of God. So also in the near ancient East, the word Elohim was part of the common vernacular. But Yahweh, Lord, the way it's written here, Yahweh was Israel's God. Yahweh is the name by which God revealed himself to Israel. The name was revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3 when God met with him, called to Moses from the burning bush at Horeb, which is also known, by the way, as Mount Sinai. And at that time, the name Yahweh was given with the Hebrew verb to be. So that the combined effect was to communicate the name of God as I am who I am. Yahweh, therefore, communicates something to us. And and be prepared. I know it's early. I'm going to give you two big theological words, but don't worry. They're in your notes and we'll define them. Yahweh communicates God's transcendence and his eminence. I know that those are are, are words that we certainly could break down and and use, but they're important that we know, and and hopefully you'll see that. God's transcendence and His eminence. Now, according to Bible.org, transcendence is a theological term referring to the relation of God to creation. What What that means specifically is, pay attention to this, it means God is other. God is utterly and completely different than every other thing, everyone else. He is independent and he transcends creation. He is beyond it and not limited by it or to it. So we would say here that transcendence refers to God's independence and self-existence. That's what transcendence means. It it means that God is independent and self-existent. Eminence, on the other hand, which Yahweh also communicates to us, eminence is, is just the opposite. It's not a contradiction, but it has a very different connotation. Eminence refers to God's nearness and interaction. So transcendence, we have independence and self-existence. Eminence, we have nearness and interaction. It refers to God interacting with his creation, sustaining his creation, and even pervading it. He has freely bound himself to that which he has created in covenantal relationship, especially human beings made in his image. And so, 
as transcendent. God is independent of, above, and distinct from anything in this universe. He is outside, above, and before this time-space universe. We see this in Psalm 115, verse 3. The psalmist writes, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. That is our transcendent God. As imminent, however, God pervades and sustains the universe. So the psalmist writes in Psalm 145, verses 15 through 16, The eyes of all look expectantly to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. God is even now active in sustaining and providing for His creation. He is not a God who is far off. But, but what does any of this have to do with the name Yahweh or Lord as we find it here in our verse? Remember what he says it means in Exodus 3. He says, I am who I am. Don't miss this. This is so significant that we spend a whole sermon on this. Everyone and everything else is what it is because of Yahweh. Amen. Yahweh alone Yahweh alone is self-existent and independent. The theological term for this, I'll give you another one, is called aseity, the aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y. And so, so we confess with the Apostle Paul, if you remember these words in 1 Corinthians 15.10, where Paul says, he says, I am what I am, but he adds a caveat to it, right? He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of the I am, I am what I am. And so we confess together and every person, even believer and non-believer alike must confess before the Lord that I am what I am because of the grace of God. But, but only Yahweh is I am who I am. Only Yahweh is transcendence. For, for this name reminds us of something equally true about God. Yahweh is also imminent. He's a covenanting God who has freely bound himself to his people. He is committed to redeem his people and he acts in history through word and deed to accomplish his mission. See, Yahweh may be transcendent, yes, but he is not some God that is far off. He is not some God who is unwilling or unable to condescend in creation in relationship and so this is why this is remarkable because Yahweh, the transcendent and imminent God, calls Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So we have the character of Yahweh, but, but what about Moses? What about Moses? Who is Moses? Well, we could probably do a six-week character sketch and several grow classes on not only the theology of God, certainly, but, but who Moses is. But I simply want to introduce you again to these individuals because we'll be seeing them again and again in Leviticus. Who was Moses? Moses was a servant of the Lord, who was also a prophet and also mediator. We'll break those down. I gave it to you one point because I plan on going a little quick here, quicker, quickish. Moses was a servant of the Lord. He was providentially spared, if you know, from a premature death at the hand of the Egyptians. He was raised in the palace of Pharaoh. 
he was educated there. And then he called by the Lord and set apart unto the service of the true and living God. Moses was an attendant before the throne of God. He was the servant of the Lord. But Moses was also a prophet who spoke God's truth to God's people. Means Moses heard directly from Yahweh and would tell the people, thus says the Lord. He could speak on behalf of God. And then Moses was also a mediator who stood between God and Israel. And I want you to save that and remember it because we're going to look at that a little bit more later. That's the character of Moses. What about Israel? Yahweh God, Moses, and now Israel. We've already seen some of this, but again, Israel is the name given to Jacob first. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. And this name Israel was passed on to his posterity. Jacob's 12 children, the 12 tribes of Israel. Who is Israel? Israel is the seed of Abraham and God's covenant people. They are a covenant nation set apart by the Lord through the covenant at Mount Sinai. Israel goes from being a rather large extended family to a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this holy nation has their God dwelling with them. Where? In the tent of meeting. Which is what we need to look at next. This is the important prop here. The tent of meeting is a palace tent. What I mean by that is this is not some pop-up tent we'd throw together when we go camping. They didn't throw in order this just to make room for God. This is an incredible mobile structure that is the traveling abode of the heavenly king. That's what this is. There's many factors that indicate that the tabernacle was really supposed to be a palace tent. For instance, tribute was brought there. Just as tribute would be brought to the palace of a king. So it was brought to the tabernacle, the palace tent. The the furniture and the, the tapestry are incredibly ornate. Just as kings have servants who wear special uniforms and attend to them, so the Lord has servants who wear special uniforms and minister in his palace tent. The tent also has a throne room, doesn't it? It was the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant resided. We're told elsewhere in Scripture that at the top of the Ark was the Lord's footstool. The cherubim that were crafted on top of the lid were his throne. And so Moses was summoned to the tent much as a king would summon a servant to his palace. And so there it is. We've we've got the backdrop. We've got the characters. Now what are we to make of this? We've got a lot of information, but but what are we to make of Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 2? Well, here's the big picture, and here's how I'd put it. The big picture is this. The holy king, taking his throne, has called his holy servant in order to address his holy people. The holy king taking his throne, has called his holy servant and called in order to address his holy people. All that follows in the book of Leviticus has to be understood in light of this very scene. We cannot miss the significance of chapter 1, verse 1, that the Lord calls to Moses from the tent of meeting. Because the holy king has taken his throne... And in just as he rested on his metaphorical throne on the seventh day, now he takes his throne and rests after speaking into existence a nation that did not exist before. Yahweh is on the throne. His glory has filled the tent. Now what? The holy king calls his holy servant. Moses. 
Moses, whom he set apart. Moses, who had been chosen for this specific role in this task. Moses is now being summoned to the palace tent to receive the instruction of the heavenly king. And and notice, by the way, that this is all God's initiative. It's God's grace. Please don't miss this point. Leviticus is not the people of God figuring out how to approach God. This is not the people trying to decide who's going to mediate for us or lead us. It is the holy king who chooses, redeems, calls, and then instructs. Just as, a creation, as at creation, the transcendent God spoke into existence that which is not. He is speaking into existence that which is not before. He is instructing his newly created nation on how to live. And this instruction is given through Moses the mediator. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him. By the way, the reason this is significant is because this is also a constant refrain that is spoken or written again and again in Leviticus. The Lord addresses Moses and Moses addresses the people. And what strikes me as incredible is that in these pictures of the Lord speaking through Moses, the people always respond not to the Lord, but to Moses as well. The people do not respond directly to the Lord. They speak to Moses, and Moses relays that message to God. Listen, I mean, you know that God could hear them, right? Right? God wasn't sitting up there in Mount Sinai, for instance, waiting for Moses, thinking, man, I wonder how they're going to respond to my Ten Commandments. The Lord could hear them, and yet the Lord honors this very arrangement. Why? Because it's necessary. They needed a mediator. They needed someone to stand between them and God. The mediatorial relationship is central to God's relationship with Israel. Throughout Israel's history, the relationship between Yahweh and Israel would be mediated through specific offices, through priests, through prophets, through kings who would stand in between the people and God. The priests, you would remember, they would would bring God's sacrifices for the people before the Lord and, and teach the people the instructions of the Lord. The prophets would speak on behalf of God and to God on behalf of the people. The king would rule the people for God and would represent the people before him. It's worth noting the separation that the average Israelite still experienced, right? Yahweh was near, yes, he is an imminent God, yes, and yet he remained separate from them. He was dwelling in the camp, but he was still separate. The average Israelite was dependent on prophets, priests, and kings to mediate their relationship with the Lord. Do you remember our our question we're going to be asking from last week in our introduction to Leviticus? Because now is the time to ask it. How much more. Friends, if that's the case, the average Israelite needed a mediator between them and God, how much more can we rejoice in our relationship with the Lord and Jesus Christ? Listen, do we still have a mediator? Yes. But our mediator is the Lord Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our mediator is the perfect priest who has given us access to the Holy of Holies and the throne of grace. And as we know, we're no longer separated from the Lord. 
Our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the great prophet who has God's word written on his hearts. Our mediator is the holy king who has all power and authority, who calls us as servant kings in this fallen world. How much more do we draw near in confidence for we are united to our mediator? In him and because of him, you and I are prophets, priests, and kings. So back to Leviticus. Here's the take-home point. We've seen the backdrop. We've seen the stage set. We've been introduced to the characters. And we've caught a glimpse of the big picture, I hope. What's the take-home point? It's this. The Holy King desires to be with His people. The Holy King desires to be with His people. Now, I need you to hear me all the way out here. If you're going to get if you're going to get distracted halfway through this statement, just go ahead and stop listening now, okay? Cuz I don't want you to hear half of this and not the other half. And so, you either have to really focus or just lift your let your mind drift for a moment. I'll tell you when to come back, okay? I'm kidding. No, you have to listen to all no, okay. Here we go. The Lord does not need you. The Lord, the Lord does not need you. You know why? He's transcendent. The Holy King does not need His people. The Lord does not need to be freely chosen by His creation to fulfill some unmet longing within Him. No, He doesn't. He is self-existent. He does not need Israel's worship, and He sure doesn't need a snack in the form of a burnt offering. He's independent. He has no need, as Paul said in in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25, God who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands as though He needed anything, since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. The triune God has no need of people because He has no need, period. He's transcendent. Yet... The Lord desires to be with His people. See, if you understand the first part, then this part becomes this much more mind-boggling. Listen, for, for dependent creatures, the reality is that there's no desire in our heart that is at not some level self-serving. We are dependent creatures. We never love the Lord from a place of just pure, true, and free love. We cannot help but recognize that we need Him. The Lord is life. He's our greatest good. He's the only source of true and lasting joy. We need the Lord. So listen, there's no real choice for us when it comes to serve the Lord or serve something that He's created. The reality is, is when we choose between serving the Lord and worshiping something He's created, we choose between the bread of life and a handful of gravel. This this is only a free choice in the minds of those who are blinded by the enemy or who are hell-bent on breaking their teeth on the stones of irrationality. We need the Lord, but the Lord doesn't need us, and praise God that He doesn't. It's a beautiful thing that He doesn't need us. But He desires us. 
Not, again, because he, he needs to fulfill something that is lacking in him, but just because he wants us. His love is completely free and his desire is completely pure for he chooses us and dwells with us because he wants to. You want to talk about a mystery, folks. You just want to ask why, right? Here's what I can give you. He wants to. Yeah, it's remarkable. It's outstanding. There is no other reason than his sovereign choice to create, to redeem, and to be with his people. And this is love, pure and simple. He gains nothing through this transaction, for he's transcendent and lacks nothing. Yet the transcendent holy king sovereignly chose to tabernacle among the Israelites. The Lord chose to be eminent in grace and mercy, despite their rebellion and sin. To condescend to his people, accommodating his communication to their own unique historical context, to reveal himself to them in a special way and dwell in their midst. This is our God. And this event right here was merely a shadow of the incarnation. Did you think we were done talking about Christmas? We ain't. All of this was to picture the incarnation. So we ask our question again. How much more? How much more should we stand in awe of our Lord since He has revealed Himself to us, not in a tent, but in the flesh of men? How much more should we glorify the Lord who didn't just dwell in the camp, but in Christ touched us? Talk to us and walked among us. How much more should we worship the Lord who didn't just instruct us on how to live, but actually lived the instructions for us? He didn't just offer us a system to atone for our sin, but He actually became the sacrifice and covered our transgressions with His own blood. How much more should we be overwhelmed by the Lord's desire to be with us, His holy people, through the Lord's special presence, His Holy Spirit dwelling in us? How much more? Listen, Christian. The Lord is in our midst this morning. Did you hear me? We go back to the beginning and ask that question. What would you do if the glory of the Lord descended upon this place? He has descended in glory on every person who is redeemed by Jesus Christ. As magnificent as the cloud of glory that fills the tent of meeting sounds, and I am sure it was, it pales in comparison to the glory that's revealed in the children of God. That's remarkable. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, For you, Christian church, you are the temple of the living God. As God had said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Church family, since, since we have the promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of every defilement, bringing holiness to completion and the fear of God. The Lord is no longer in our midst, but step, separated from us still. Like he was the people of Israel. No. The Spirit of the Lord now fills us with the glory of Christ. 
for the purpose that we might shine as a light unto the nations. For as Paul writes elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So here's the application. How will you respond to the special presence of God? So, what would you do if the Lord filled this place with His glory this morning? What would you do? Would you worship? Would you strive for holiness? Would you mortify sin? Would you proclaim His coming? What would change in your life? What would you do if the Lord fills this place with His glory this morning? Christian, look to your left and look to your right. He has. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we're guilty. Lord, we're guilty of thinking small thoughts about you. Small thoughts about your redemptive work. So Father, we confess that together this morning... We hear about these events in the Old Testament and think how marvelous it must have been. And yet the reality is they are but types and shadows of the reality which has come in Christ. The reality is they pale in comparison to the glory that's been revealed in us. So Father, we often view the fact that that you called Moses from the tent of meeting. We think, wow, what it must have been like for Moses to be called by the glory of the Lord in the tent of the meeting. When the reality is your spirit is dwelling within us. Father, forgive us for thinking small thoughts. Forgive us for not worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Forgive us for not mortifying sin and pursuing holiness. And we pray for, we pray for grace this week to be caught up in this vision of you descending in glory on every believer. That we might look at one another differently. That we might encourage one another differently. That we might strive to live lives worthy of your gospel, knowing that we do not do so in our own strength, but by the power of your spirit within us. Father, be honored and glorified by your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We are now going to transition into the word made visible with the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. If I could go ahead and ask my deacons to come on down. Remember what this is. This is what we just talked about. Visible. This is a reminder, an ordinance for us as the local church body to remember the sacrifice of Christ, the atoning sacrifice covered for us in His blood. So as we do this, we want to remind each and every one of you, this is primarily for our local church members, those who have united to us in membership, have sat under... um, the, the shepherding of, of the elders here, but it is, uh, we invite you to partake in it if you know yourself to be a believer. And let me just encourage you, this is something to be done in reverence, and so even if, if you're you know, a, a, a small child and you're not sure where you believe, or you're a parent of a small child and you're not sure whether or not they're truly Christians and so on, I'm going to ask the parents to use discernment in that. But, but friends, this is to be done in, in holy reverence because we are remembering that which we are partakers of, the grace that has been given to us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And so we don't take this lightly, we take this seriously, and we're going to have an opportunity and time for us to get right before the Lord, to confess sins again to Him before we partake of this, His holy supper. Amen. Thank you, church family. You may be seated.
Has it been already a great day in the house of the Lord? Boy, I tell you what, I just, I love the, the ability to take that understanding of Yahweh and His, His transcendence and eminence and, and just to dwell on its goodness and the message you have for us. Listen, being down 27-0 and, and coming back, uh, that, you know, that, that gets me fired up. But, but listen, there ain't nothing compared to this, right? It ain't nothing compared. My brother and I were walking, everybody was so excited yesterday, and my brother, who's also a pastor, we're walking down there thinking, just, just to think that people could have this kind of celebration and heart of joy every Sunday if they joined a local church, right? Just wonderful to think about. And so praise God for His grace. We come to the time of the invitation, though. The invitation is pretty clear for, for us as a, as, a, as a church family. It's just continue to really live with the idea the Spirit of Christ dwells within you. All these, as we read through Leviticus, as we do our, our readings, as we study this book, to recognize that... That which they experience in only types and shadows, we get to experience day in, day out. Not perfectly, no, but, but the inauguration of that has been set forth. And we long for the day where we'll have the presence of God with us without the presence of sin. And so we long for that, we, we cherish that, but we need to begin to view each other as children of the Most High King. As those by whom and with whom Christ dwells. I think that's important for us to recognize and how we speak to one another, how we view each other, how we, we live on mission for the gospel. We just really need to think of the reality that what if the glory of the Lord really were to descend on this place? When you pondered that question at the beginning of the sermon, was it the same answer at the end of the sermon? If not, we need to live at the same answer at the end of the sermon that it would actually impact and change the way we live because it should. The transcendent and imminent God has desired to be with His people and not because there was anything good in you simply because He wanted to. Therefore, He's worthy of not only saying thank you, but every ounce of praise and holy living that you and I can strive for day in and day by out. And praise God, by His grace, He gives us the strength to be able to have victory over sin and be able to do so. So let's tap into that, church. Let's live in that way. But maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Did you not hear what we said? This transcendent God is also imminent. And we see that no greatly displayed, as greatly displayed as we do in the life of Jesus Christ. The reality is, as we've seen from the beginning, you are born under the curse of Adam, your father. You commit sin daily. You choose actively to rebel and sin against this holy God. As we just sang, you were an enemy of God. If you don't have His grace upon you, you are an enemy of God. And that's not solely because He's holy, but it's also because you're sinful and you choose to reject and rebel against Him. But the good news of the gospel is that this God has done something about this. This God desires, He desires for you to be saved. And to think about that and what that means as the why, it's simply because of His character and nature and who He is. So so receive that. And He's done everything needed for your salvation in the blood of His Son. Yes, that's right. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, was born. Which I know is just remarkable for us to even think about. Fully God, fully man. Born, humbled himself to live as a child, to grow, to be taught in wisdom. He he lived this life perfectly without sin, without spot or blemish, so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for mankind. And on the cross, God took all the punishment that you and I deserved in our sins, and he put it upon his precious son whom he loved. But not only that, 
He gives us, those who believe and trust in Him, His perfect righteousness, His perfect standing, so that the holy, transcendent God can look upon us and be with us and not compromise His holiness. It's a remarkable thing. If you would but turn from your sins this morning, declare that you have no right to sit as Lord of your life, that only Jesus is Lord, that you would turn your allegiance from yourself to Him and then trust in His finished work on the cross by faith. Today, you could have the transcendent God of the universe be to you the imminent God that dwells within you. Today, you can have the Spirit of the King Most High living inside you and you can be a child of the Most High King. And live out that very purpose for which you're created. If you're not a Christian here this morning and you just even have more questions about that or you've heard that and you want to respond with faith, let me invite you at the end of our service to, to come down. I'll be down front. We'll have some deacons as well who'll be down front who would love the opportunity to share Christ with you this morning, to encourage you and to lead you to faith. There's not some magical prayer you need to pray. It's as simple as the publican in Luke 16 who's pounding on his chest, who's, who's so enraptured by his own sin, he can't even lift his head up from the ground. And he simply says, dear God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's it. That's how good this God is, is that he allows opportunity for us to respond to him and to be saved. And so please, friend, do not leave this place without knowing that you belong to the Lord, without knowing that the transcendent yet imminent God has dwelled within you by spirit.